What is it in the world that you are most sick of right now? I'll tell you what I'm most sick of. The 2016 U.S. presidential election, that's what. (laughs) Can I get an amen? (laughs) All right. I bet most of you are sick of it, too. I mean, aside from the entertainment value, the like of a train wreck, this depressing debacle has gone on far too long. I mean, last year's Canadian election, for frame of reference, was our third longest ever at 76 days, give or take. The U.S. campaigns are all approaching 600 days, about now. They're all culminating this Tuesday with our media so fixated on it, with our attention so fixed on it. I figured that this would be as good a time as any to address a particular worldview, which may just be affecting us in subtle ways these days, called nationalism. Now, I recognize I'm not speaking to Americans today, who it may apply more to, but if we think that nationalism doesn't affect Canadians at all, I think we're mistaken. If you only had 25% of a cancer that your friends had, would it still bother you? Can I be honest with you, as someone who has lived on both sides of the border, sat on in both chairs, when I first moved to Canada, I noticed the general attitude towards Americans was to see them as arrogant, proud, and loud. And a lot of that is true. However, precisely because of this attitude, I've also noticed the knife cut both ways. Since Americans are seen as arrogant, Canadians begin to feel superior. It's, it's kind of like a, a reverse arrogance, feeling and acting as if we are indeed better than our neighbors. Now, we might not show it in the same ways, but we Canadians are fiercely proud of our nation. Besides that, we in Ottawa live in the capital city of our country. We're a a government town. And so nationalism will impact us more here in our city than in other places in Canada, especially for those of us who maybe work in government or are looking to work in the government. It's always before us. In addition to that, you never know what's in the future. You never know if in a few years, maybe our country is caught up in another war, like the ones that we remembered today, which could issue fresh demands for devotion to our nation. And this can definitely affect us. On top of all that, we did just sing our national anthem, O Canada, as part of our worship service today. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. But it does make us have to stop and think. How do our loyalties to our nations fit within our faith? Do they fit? How do they fit? Now, I guess that all of us here would fall into one of four camps this morning when it comes to nationalism. All right? First, there are those of us who are Canadian citizens here who are proud to be Canadian. Maybe you've come from somewhere else in the world which you're not as proud of, so you're very thankful to be here in Canada. Second, there are are citizens from elsewhere in the world, any nations in the world, maybe just residents here in Canada. But you have a huge love and a place in your heart for your homeland. Whether that would be the U.S. or the Philippines, or China, or Congo, or Haiti, or anywhere really in the world. Third, there are citizens of wherever again today here, Canada or elsewhere, who are pretty indifferent when it comes to your country. You can take it or leave it, really. You don't care too much about your heritage. Finally, there are those here today who would specifically not be proud of their country. That you may only have negative feelings about belonging to an earthly country. 
Now, no matter where you fall along this spectrum, you are still part of a nation, for better or worse. No matter how you feel about things right now, we are susceptible to this worldview. And we will still need to relate and engage with people that have this worldview. So what is a Christian to do? What is a Christian to do with our home and native lands? How should we see them? How should we relate to them? Especially when, like today, they seem rather godless. In order to most properly stand on guard for Canada, I believe we need to first guard our hearts. So, let's get a reality check together, shall we? Before we go any deeper, though, let's stop again. Ask God to be the one that gives us this reality check. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our country. We thank you for our freedoms. And as we come today to your word, may we learn to value you even more. May we worship you and you alone. Rid our hearts of any other affections or loyalties that compete for your throne, for all other thrones will fall before yours. We pray that you open our hearts, our minds, consider these things. Have your, please have your spirit move in our hearts today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I talk about worldviews or, or heart orientations, don't assume that you only have one. Okay? Because many of us have, or most of us have many worldviews. Perhaps picture your heart like a garden, where there are many plants attempting to take root in the garden. See, we are all impacted by a number of different ways to see the world. And the process of guarding our hearts is to tend to the good plants and to pull up the weeds. I suspect for many of us that today's worldview may just be a small weed that needs to be pulled. But it's still a weed. And Jesus wants our whole hearts. And who knows? Maybe a lot bigger than that. It can be a challenge to see the serious danger posed by nationalism because this worldview tends to coexist well with other worldviews that we have. In fact, you can see this in the first answer of the, the eight key questions that we're going to ask. The first question, what underlies reality? What's the foundation of nationalism? It's very flexible. All right. It, in other words, you can hold just about to any ultimate foundation you want and still, like a, a God, gods, humanity, culture, nature, whatever, and at the end of the day, you can still be a nationalist or a patriot of your country. Most people aren't delusional to think that their nation is the foundation of everything. You just don't think like that. However... Many would believe that their nation has tapped into something foundational. Let me explain. For example, people who believe in God are often more susceptible to nationalism because they see their nation as being built on the foundation of their God's authority. Just a cursory glance at history would tell you that you would see our tendency to intermingle God and country. Number two, what is real? What kind of convictions does nationalism have about reality? Here's a key one. Nations are essential, if not eternal. Nations are essential, if not eternal. Most people will hold this rather unconsciously. They won't even realize it. They just assume it. Because if you stop and think about it, you, of course, realize that your nation is not eternal but we treat them as if they have always existed and will always exist. But even if we don't see them as eternal, we definitely see our nations as essential, essential to our well-being, to our safety, to our security, to our lifestyle, the way we live our lives. Number three, who are we, our identity? Our identity, or at least a crucial part of our identity, is found in our nationality or our citizenship. 
We are citizens of the states. We are defined by our ethnic and national identities. Number four, what is true? From where do we get knowledge? And again, nationalism is very flexible here. Right? We can get our truths from many different sources. But what nationalism does is it often adds your nation as an additional truth source. So there are echoes of both relativism and tribalism here. That what is true for you as a Canadian is not necessarily true for an Arabian or a Zimbabwean. Your national identity will influence or even determine truths for you. It's a similar situation with morality. Right? The question is, what is good, or what is right or wrong? Well, you can be a nationalist and hold to a huge variety of different morals, mainly because each nation is allowed to possess a different set of moral standards. We all have different laws, we all have different standards, and so you're allowed to have that. We can also fall prey to the tendency to define our own morals by our nation's standards. So whatever Canada in general, what Canadians in general see as acceptable, that's what's acceptable for you. Number six, what is important? So what are the values that nationalism promotes? You can probably name a bunch of these yourselves, right? Definitely freedom, usually liberty, as well as things like loyalty, allegiance, peace. And if you look up Canada's website, you can actually see a lot of these main values come across. They just they put them right there for you. Freedom, acceptance, strength. Pride, diversity, equality, peace, order, unity, human rights, justice, and so on. And one often unadvertised value that virtually every nation pursues is power. If you really boil down why nations even come into existence in the first place, it's because they're usually they're after some form of power, whether that be stability or military power or economic power. Usually we're after one of those when we make a nation, or all of them. So, according to nationalism, what is wrong? What is broken in our world that needs fixed? Essentially, any lack or rejection of these values. Any lack of freedom or equality or human rights, any lack of of peace or order, or any perceived disloyalty or disrespect to your country. Consider how many people down south are furious about a football player who refused to kneel during, or he, he dared to kneel, I mean, during the national anthem disrespectful, shameful. We might feel similarly to to someone defacing a, a national monument or belittling the military or breaking a bunch of the laws of the land. From another angle, nationalists often see the fallenness of the world as outside their own nation. Right? So what is wrong? What's wrong is that other nations are not as good as we are. They don't share the same values or diversity or human rights, and that needs to be fixed. So, number eight, what can be done? How can we find salvation from these problems that exist in our world? Well, the historic extreme is colonialism. The urge to spread our nation's system worldwide. But most of us aren't necessarily impacted by nationalism quite to that, to that extent. Most would find salvation in nationalism simply in deep, deep love for your nation. To take pride in your country, represent your country, stand up for your country's values, Do whatever your country asks you to do. If necessary, even fight or die for your country. Your love 
for your country should help both stamp out divergent views here at home and help promote your country's values worldwide. And in this, in this way, in some small way, we and our nation and even our world can find salvation. Nationalism has definitely impacted Christians in a number of ways. Sometimes we fall into the same ruts here as we do in postmodern tribalism, if you were here with us last week, in that we identify with a national, cultural, ethnic, or racial group more than we identify with the people of God or as a child of God. Sometimes we can start believing that our nation is uniquely favored by God. That we have a a special place in God's heart or in God's plans. This may be more prominent in the States, but it is certainly present here. As we claim that Canada was formed as a Christian nation, or as we quote verses like 2 Chronicles 7.14, as if they applied to us, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's not about us. We may think we can reclaim favor of God by regaining some golden age or political situation. Sometimes we can blur the lines between God's laws and our nation's laws. Sometimes we can overvalue national traditions or rituals, even to the point of legalism. I mean, do we care more about wearing a poppy and remembering our fallen veterans than we do about taking communion, remembering our fallen Savior? Now, that's really a false choice, right? Because we should care about both. My only question is, what do we care about more? It really comes down to our priorities. What holds our primary allegiance and loyalties? Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford say, nationalism becomes a temptation precisely when nations have sufficient strength or goodness to inspire deep-seated loyalties. In other words... Our nations become a temptation when they begin to resemble, in the palest of ways, God. When they are strong enough, or free enough, or good enough to inspire our allegiance. There's nothing wrong with secondary allegiances. Don't get me wrong. okay? But a nation must never have our first allegiance. Because nations, they're not gods. They're under God. Here's my first point for us. All human nations are under God's sovereign rule. All human nations, Canada included, are under God's sovereign reign and rule. For example, Psalm 22:26 says, "For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations." Proverbs 21:1, "The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will." Daniel prophesied this about the son of man, aka Jesus. He said, "And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him." His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. First place I'll have you turn is Acts 17. Acts 17. We'll be jumping around a lot, but turn this place first. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's on page 926. Acts 17. This is Paul preaching in Athens, talking about God's sovereignty. And pick it up with me in verse 24. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel they way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Now, this means that since the beginning of history, God made each nation. He formed them. God is the one who determined their length of existence, their allotted times, when they would start, when they would end. And God is the one, it says, who determined their national borders, their boundaries, where they would live. Yes, humans had parts to play. But God was ultimately the one calling the shots. Nations are temporary establishments created and shaped by God. Many nations tend to view themselves as destined by God or by gods to rule forever. And God ends up being their servant in this instant. They get the destined part right. (laughs) They They couldn't be more wrong on the result. God is not the servant of nations. Nations are the servant of God. I want you to notice something here, though. Something very interesting in verse 26 and 27. Read it again. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. So do you follow this thought? Paul's saying, God brought nations into existence in order to help us find God. Interesting, right? Where you live right now was actually meant to draw you closer to God. So don't assume that just because you live here in what you might see as a a dark land, that you're going to drift away from God. No, it says he says that these were created that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. God is not far away from us in Canada. And he has placed you right where you are in order to help you find him. If you have if you have heard the gospel here. That was God's doing. Thank him for that. If you haven't yet found him, keep feeling your way toward him. He is not far. All human nations are under God's sovereign rule, which means on Tuesday... No matter what happens in the U.S. election, it'll be okay. Because God will still be on his throne. Jesus will still be king. God will be in control. Closer to home. Whether or not you like our current Canadian government, Remember that it is under God's sovereign rule. He is still king. He is still in control. If there is a kingdom higher than any human kingdom, that really should shape our worldview, the way we see the world. Any other allegiances, any other loyalties, any other belongings, any loves must be subservient to this one. And that's our second point. All human nations are under God's sovereign rule. Therefore, our belonging to human nations must always come beneath our belonging to a higher kingdom. 
Our devotion to our nations must always be subservient to our devotion to God's kingdom. To do otherwise is to get reality totally mixed up. It's getting our focus and our priorities backwards. Now, you might might hear this and think, well, this is pretty blatantly obvious, right? Yet, history is littered with countless people who got their loyalties mixed up here. It can happen to us, too. So we must guard against this tendency. See, like all potential idols, our nations naturally tend to call for our full devotion. That's where they automatically go. But nationalism oversteps its bounds in calling for our ultimate loyalty because no matter how powerful or peaceful or beautiful or good they are, nations are impersonal created entities that have not earned your worship. But there is a personal creator who has. He doesn't tolerate rival gods. So what are we really supposed to view reality like as Christians under God's rule? Turn over, if you would, to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. The Pew Bibles, that's on page 1017, or sorry, 1015. This describes the Christian's new reality under Christ. Right? Peter says this in verse 9 of 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is our new reality. I think it would be a fascinating experiment to to map out, everyone in this room, all of our ancestral family trees. And to, to look at a, a map all over the world and, and just see how much of the world we'd cover, right? With dots and lines going all over the place, where people have lived, where they've moved. It'd be fascinating. Then imagine with me bringing all of our ancestors together, even 200 years ago. Okay, not that far back. Our ancestors 200 years ago and telling them, listen, right now, you are not a people. You are spread out across the globe, diverse. You've got nothing in common, basically. But in 200 years from now, some of your great-great-great-great-grandkids are all going to come together as part of a a yet-unformed nation and make up a Canadian people. Wouldn't that be neat? What our nations have done in bringing us together as a people, God has done on a much grander scale. He has taken people from every nation, every race, every tongue, every age of history, and he's made us part of what he calls his own people, a new race a new nation, a new people. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And think about it. God didn't need to bring us all together in one geographic location to do this. In fact, he did the opposite. He dispersed his people. He spread them out all over the world. And then he said, you are my holy nation there. So you can now proclaim my praises everywhere. Do you notice 
how we're made part of this holy nation? It's through Jesus. Look at verse 10 again. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's a correlation between receiving mercy and being God's people. And this will, of course, refer to the mercy that we have received for unthinkable and uncountable sins against God's throne. Which, this mercy is only offered to us because... Jesus died to take our place. And then he left the darkness of death behind for the, to re-enter the light of life. And he told us, come along with me into my light. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's Jesus. See, You have committed crimes against the state of states, against the nation of nations, against the kingdom of kingdoms, and most of all against the king of kings. And if you are never forgiven for them, you will be justly punished for them. But the excellent news that I proclaim to you today is that Christ offers mercy now. He offers mercy. And if you have never trusted in Christ for salvation, he is calling you out of darkness into light today. Ask for his mercy. Receive his mercy. Become part of his people do that today. Once we've been saved, this new citizenship we have should supersede all other citizenships. As we recently saw in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us who have believed, our chief identity is now in Christ as part of his nation of his kingdom, which transcends all borders and encompasses all nationalities. It's transnational. Therefore, our primary solidarity is now with fellow believers, not fellow countrymen. Peter Lightheart says, We are members of a communion that now more than ever before is geographically universal. Our deepest brotherhood isn't with other citizens of our nation, but with those who are united with us by the Spirit and the Son. Baptismal water is thicker than blood. The the word unites us more basically than any commitment to any constitution. No matter how wise its political institution, we cannot be nationalists. I love that, that, that baptismal water is thicker than blood has to be that way for us. We must resist the pull to offer our highest loyalty to any human nation or ruler or even any political party or system. We are Christians first, citizens second. Question for you. If you took all the conversations you've had over the last year, all the social media posts or discussions you've had. This is convicting for me, too. How many would be about politics, and how many would be about your faith? Can it just really just be a warning sign that you've lost priority, if not perspective? This also means we need to resist the urge to see people of other nationalities as others, different than us. Remember the TV show Lost? In Lost, some people survived a plane crash on an island, and, they, and many of them banded together, kind of like a tribe of people on this island. Partway through the show, though, another group of people was found on the island. 
And they were seen as challengers and competitors, even enemies of them. And what were they called? Simply the others. Ooh, the others are coming. We're not careful. This is what we tend to do with people who are different than us. We compare them to our own nationality or our own political ideologies, and they seem inferior to us. We're even downright wrong. But remember, in Christ, though we, though we retain our national and cultural distinctives, in Christ, ultimately, there are no national boundaries or dividing distinctives among us. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Stan Fowler says this, The locus of Christian unity is the gospel, not political ideology. Even if we agree on our goals, we may disagree on the best way to get there. But none of that negates what we share in the gospel, and we dare not forget that. We are together heirs of the only kingdom that will endure, and we ought to see present reality through that lens. Now let me warn you. Don't get too attached to your country or your countries. Think of a map of Canada back when it was formed, 1867. If you've seen a map, just... Four provinces that don't look anything like they do now. What will we look like in another hundred years from now? Maybe we'll annex a few Caribbean islands for cheap winter holidays. (laughs) Maybe we'll lose a province or two. You all know the ones I'm thinking of. Maybe Canada won't exist at all. Canada is not going to exist forever. Maybe it won't even last your lifetime. So would God's sovereign plan be hampered in any way if Canada did not exist in 2116? Or even... Next year, 2017, didn't even make it to our 150th birthday. The answer is absolutely not. God is not dependent on Canada. Neither should we be. All human nations are under God's sovereign rule. Therefore, our belonging to human nations must always come beneath belonging to his holy nation. But how does that actually play itself out? How should we respond? What does that look like in our lives? My final point today tells us how I believe the Bible would answer these questions. And it says this way, I put it this way, we should be prayerful, thankful, and submissive citizens of our human nations all the while looking forward to a better one. We should be prayerful, thankful, submissive citizens of our earthly countries, and all the while we should be looking forward to a better country. Keep a finger or a bookmark in 1 Peter 2 and flip backwards to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, that's on page 991. 1 Timothy 2, right at the beginning, listen to Paul's words here. First of all, then, very important. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And especially, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now remember, Paul's writing these words, his letters, to people in the Roman Empire, which was much worse than Canada in many ways. 
All right? So how are we as earthly citizens to live as citizens, or heavenly citizens to live as earthly citizens of nations? First, we should be prayerful. Okay? When was the last time you prayed for Canada? When was the last time you prayed for Justin Trudeau? Or Kathleen Wynne? Or your MP? Listen. If you want to make an impact in your nation or in your government, you will make a far more significant impact by praying than you will by activism or voting or protesting or community service or campaigning or even running for office. After all, it's in those moments that you come directly before the King of Kings. And it's he that sovereignly rules the nations. That's a mind-blowing privilege. It's also a command for believers. First of all, then, I urge this supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions Secondly, we should be thankful. Did you notice that in verse 1? So that urges supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Thanksgivings. Now, not everything about our earthly citizenship is bad. Our nations can do a lot for the common good. Nationalism, if you think about it, it can be valuable in in counteracting individualism or tribalism, as it calls us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, than our own little tribes, something bigger, to, to sacrifice for other people. Our nations can also provide healthy conditions for the gospel to go forward. This, if you notice, was the ultimate reason Paul wanted us to pray for our authorities, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And because God, in verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is why we're praying. So, inasmuch as Canada meets the descriptions of First Timothy 2, I believe we should be thankful. And, even if it doesn't meet that standard one day, we should still be thankful. Thankful that we are entrusted worthy to suffer for Christ. Besides, God can use that to give even more fertile ground for the gospel. Just look at the church, the thriving churches in China or Iran, for example. Being thankful, being thankful is why I think it is totally appropriate for Christians to celebrate Remembrance Day. Because we should be thankful for the sacrifices others made to give us freedom. As long as it never supplants our thanksgiving to God, we must be thankful. Thirdly, we should be submissive to our earthly nation's and their laws. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now remember, your allegiance to heaven comes first. So if your nation ever required you to disobey God, you must disobey your nation. The apostles declared, we must obey God rather than man. But, any other time, for any other law, from taxes, to traffic, to marriage, to copyright, we must submit. We have to 
protect our integrity and our conduct amongst the world that we live in. Flip back over to 1 Peter 2. If you kept a bookmark there, 1 Peter 2 again. See how this passage continues. We read it about the holy nation. We're part of a chosen race. People for God's own possession. Verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Look how it continues. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Continues, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Those are good words for us. And verse 12 is where the whole looking forward to a better nation comes from. Because Jesus is coming back again, as it says here, to glorify God on the day of visitation. And until then, we need to live in such a way as to point others towards him. But we will not be able to do this if we grow overly attached to this life now. No, it says we're meant to live as temporary residents of our nations. Sojourners or travelers, journeyers, exiles. Last jump for today. Turn back about seven pages or so to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, very famous chapter known as the Hall of Faith. It lists many biblical people who lived by faith in God, Noah, Abraham, Moses, many more. And right in the middle of Hebrews 11, the the list is paused, and this is said. Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. There's the term, strangers and exiles. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Have you ever noticed how many people in the Bible were so obviously sojourners on earth? Think about it. Adam and Eve, cast out of the garden, their perfect homeland. Noah, floated away from his, the ark landing in a foreign land. Abraham was commanded to leave his homeland of Ur and move to Canaan. Later, Joseph, his great-grandson, was forcibly dragged away from that land, eventually dragging his father Jacob and all his brothers along with him to Egypt. Moses grew up in Egypt lived in Midian, ended up wandering the wilderness. Joshua, also born in Egypt, also a fellow wanderer, ends up finally leading his people to the promised land. Ruth chose to leave Moab in her homeland to go be with Naomi, her mother-in-law. Saul, David, Solomon all began this this brand new kingdom, which then promptly disintegrated. Eventually, during this time, we know the prophet Jonah did his ministry, and God called him to leave his home to go minister abroad in Nineveh. 
Eventually, all the people of Israel were violently exiled into Assyria and Babylon, far away from their homes. Daniel was one of these, carried off to Babylon, where he carried out his whole prophetic ministry there. Esther, an exiled Jew who had to stand up for her people in the Persian palace. Finally, we come to Jesus. And Jesus, a Jew, born in Israel. But Israel isn't even a nation anymore. By that time, they're this subjugated colony of the Roman Empire. And Jesus even had to flee that to Egypt. He lived his, he did his ministry, he was homeless. And then Jesus sends his disciples out into the whole world. Syria, Africa, India, Europe. Paul's ministry takes him all over the known world in order to spread the gospel. Are you noticing a theme? Hardly anyone in the entire Bible is ever given a chance to settle down and get comfortable. There was constant change. But there was also one constant. God was king. So I ask you today, you're a follower of Jesus, have you acknowledged that you are a sojourner in exile on this earth? This is the transitory calling of the people of God. Don't get too attached here. Our true homeland is coming. So let's seek that kingdom. Look forward to that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you take all of our hearts and direct them to yourself, direct them to the future, to what is coming, where we can't even imagine it, but you say for us to fix our hearts, to set our hearts on the things above, where you are seated as king. Fix our hearts there today, God. Help us throw aside any other allegiances and make you our king. In Jesus' name, amen.